so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. As we continue this mini-series in our recently published volume, The Digital Public Square with BNH Academic, I'm joined by Nathan Lemer to talk about his contribution entitled The Wild West of Technology a convergence of optimism and pessimism in the United States. Today, we talk about how Christians can think wisely and better about the role of government and industry in the technology policy debate here in the United States. Nathan serves as the executive director of the Digital First Project, as well as the vice president for public affairs at Targeted Victory. He previously served as a policy advisor to FCC chairman Ajit Pai. Before working at the FCC, he was a senior fellow at the R Street Institute, where he managed the Institute's government relations, as well as wrote extensively on issues like emerging technology, intellectual property, as well as privacy. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us here on the Digital Public Square. I'm really excited about this conversation as we continue this mini-series on the Digital Public Square, Christian Ethics in a Technological Society. Uh, One, we've been friends for a while, and I was really honored to have you as part of this volume addressing uh, what I think for most listeners uh, will be kind of a different understanding or a different take on technology because you focus primarily on domestic technology policy. Um, You obviously are there in the Washington, D.C. area. You've worked on these issues for a long time. But before we get into that, I want to get to know you a little bit. Um, I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about your background. Obviously, we've heard your bio. We know where you've worked and things like that. But tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to work on these specific type of issues. So long-time listener, first-time caller. It's great to be on with you. Um, you know, uh, I've been a long-time fan of your work, and it's honestly, again, the feeling is mutual. It's great to collaborate with you on this project, and I hope there are other opportunities to continue the partnership because I think what you're doing here is really important. I think that the type of things that you're doing fits into my own background, which is as a Christian who cares about the intersection of policy and technology, I came at it from an interesting background, which is that I was a former teacher, high school history teacher, who uh, struggled to find a job in the midst of the recession of 2008, 2009, and found a job in the state legislator's office in Michigan. And uh, I got to work on education policy, ironically. And in that experience, I got to actually work with the same teacher 
people, educators who actually kept me from getting a job in the first place. And I got this real role reversal of like my position as a policymaker staffer, kind of like they needed my permission or our permission to do certain things. And I was like, oh, I love this. Like I'm in a position of power now. I love politics. This is cool. And then lo and behold, one thing led to another. And that member Congress, the state representative went to Congress and I worked for him and he was plugged into tech policy. And back in 2010s, 2011, 2012, no one was really doing this. It, it, I mean, there was a lot of money in tech policy and, 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 pol- and lobbying and stuff. But there weren't many research institutions, think tanks, advocacy groups really talking about tech. And that's really where I got into it. And um, now that uh, I'm a dad of three kids and you know my kids are growing up and we're having these conversations about how to use technology in our household um, and what they should use or not use, like I'm using the background of my policy experience to inform the way me and my wife approach those conversations in our home. You know, our church, thinking about everything from like going online only for a certain amount of time and the positives and negatives of that. How do you leverage technology appropriately in ministry and in, in, in our church? Like, It's been really neat to see those conversations flourish and develop. And because of the work I've done on Capitol Hill at the FCC and now in the private practice, like I'm able to kind of see um, the bigger picture and kind of bring these kind of conversations together and they're not going away. And we as Christians and people in the policymaking space, um, academics and others need to pay close attention and need to realize that they're evolving and they're evolving almost as fast as the technology is adapting. Yeah. And I think that's one of the important things to note, and we'll kind of unpack that a little bit. It's just the speed at which not only technology is developing, I think most of us kind of realize that or are starting to realize that at least, um, but the speed at which technology policy changes and how quickly this conversation changes. Um, And we'll talk a little bit about that throughout the podcast. Um, But I really like that connection where you're talking about is a lot of, at least for me, and I think probably similar for what you just said is um, having kids changed a lot for me in terms of how I thought through these issues. I'm starting to apply the things that I do at work and the things that I do in my writing and research, my academic study, as well as I'm starting to think about how the role and kind of the way technology shaping me, my marriage, but also my children and the world in which they're going to inhabit. And one of the things we've said throughout this mini-series here on the podcast is that uh, we have to address the world as it is, not as just the way we hope it to be. Um, Not that we don't have a vision, not that we don't have goals and kind of ends in mind. We definitely do. Um, But technology is causing us to ask not maybe new questions per se. It's causing us to ask these age-old questions in light of new opportunities. And that's kind of the the vision behind a work like this. And one of the reasons that as we were designing this and talking about a philosophy of technology, and then last week we also talked about the nature of the public square and kind of notoriety and the way that that shapes how we respond, we kind of shift into this week we're talking about technology policy, specifically from a domestic U.S. perspective. And then next week we'll talk a little bit more about it from an international perspective and how Christians across the kind of overseas are starting to think through some of these questions as well. Uh, But you begin your chapter talking about the transformation of technology, the pace of change here, specifically in American life, and how there are a lot of fears and questions that people have now that they may not even have had last week, much less a couple years ago or even a decade ago. We have questions surrounding uh, issues of privacy, questions of the power of the technology industry, the influence that this industry has, kind of outsized influence in public life and social life. Uh, the use of artificial intelligence, we've seen that even in the last few months with kind of the all of the chatter and kind of uproar around chat GPT and these uh, language models and how that's going to alter maybe education and a host of things. 
as well as even the automation of the workforce. This is something that kind of is a low-level, not a low-level issue in terms of importance, but at least in public conversation is we're not talking a lot about the way that artificial intelligence and automation is fundamentally changing the workforce and what we think about work. So what are some of the factors or maybe technologies that you think have kind of helped set this trajectory? I think it's easy for us to come into these conversations as if everything's new, but one of the things you wisely do in the chap in this chapter is kind of give us a little history to say, hey, we knew some of this stuff was kind of coming, but it kind of started back here. So I wanted to see if you can tell us what are some of those technologies or trajectories or factors that you think kind of help set the path that we're on today? Yeah, um, for me, I bring it up in every conversation, and this is a great place to start, is that I think of technology as one big stack. I think of the application level, the experience that the user interfaces with an app or, or, or a social media platform. And then you think underneath there at the cloud cloud services level, uh, the intermediaries, if you will, that allow the, the applications to work. And then you also think lower than that at the telecommunications side, the internet provider level. And what's interesting is as the conversations are evolving around social media, free speech, artificial intelligence, AI, you know, automated workforce, et cetera, that's on the application level. But a lot of those lessons stem back from conversations that happened whenever I was in elementary school uh, in the 90s uh, or, or in the 1996 Telecommunications Act or, you know, the CDA 230, the CDA 230 conversation around uh, uh, internet liability and, and kind of in our free speech. So it goes back to that first principles. I think those conversations that people were having around what's the power of cable companies, what's the power of media companies uh, from the beginning. I think that informs the way we think about these other platforms, because honestly, it's about balancing, promoting of innovation that enables people to accomplish new things in their lives, whether at an educational level or improving their economic well-being, et cetera, with real consumer protection questions um, that persist throughout time. You know, if you look back, Congress was debating privacy laws for decades. I mean, this is not new, but the conversations are taking on new shapes because of the connections with our lives. And so I think going back to those first principles are so important about like, what do I believe free speech means? What do I believe the Fourth Amendment means when it comes to privacy? How does that apply to private companies versus the government? These are the questions that I think are so essential. You know, um, I've actually heard the argument that like encryption is the second amendment of the internet to protect you from other users or other other powers. And I'm like, it's an interesting argument. Like there is a connection there. So how do you find the limitations of that, of that simplistic saying, but also what's the truth there? And so I think that has been the underlying approach that I've used to traverse in these conversations. For me, the first thing that I look to is like, what were lawyers and activists and advocates saying in the mid-90s? I quote uh, Chan Berry, Perry Barlow from the Electronic Future Foundation, who was writing about the Declaration of Independence online back in 1995. And those issues are so clear now as they were 30 years, 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, whenever he he wrote them. Oh my gosh, we're we're in the mid 2020 So now it's like 30 years ago. I got to remember that. I'm, I used to be 20 years ago, 90s. But yeah, I mean, that's just sort of the, the overall conversation that those principles are persisting. And it would be helpful for us not to think that everything is brand new, but to take it back to those first principles and those conversations. And then that helps inform the way we think about the future. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I was really grateful to have you and this chapter on domestic tech policy and then Patricia Shaw talking about international tech policy. 
specifically more of kind of an EU UK focus um, because it is interesting that, and it wasn't until reading her chapter actually that I started to kind of realize this. I guess I always knew it, but Christians, you know, we're Christians first in that sense, whether kind of whatever kind of political alignment we have, but it's really interesting to see how Christians in different contexts they have different histories, their countries have different histories and the different approaches and how that kind of shapes and alters the way that we see all of these things. And I think you're exactly right. Going back to some of those first principles, going back to some of those early conversations, many of the same debates, as you said, were that were happening in the mid 90s are continuing on now, just in a little bit of a, a different form, a little bit. And then as you well know, um, and as readers, if they check out your chapter, will also know, a lot of our uh, policies, specifically governing modern emerging technologies, were actually written uh, back in the early 90s, mid-90s, and still have not been updated um, in some sense. And so it is kind of interesting, the fast pace of technological development, the fast pace of how the policy is changing, but sometimes the slow nature of policy crafting and refining and uh, bringing kind of a bipartisanship, or at least what we hope is a bipartisan approach to many of these issues. Before we dig in a little bit, I wanted to see if you could kind of help us to see, obviously in your chapter, you're doing more of a U.S.-centric policy perspective, um, but there also is, we've talked about kind of that international perspective. I wanted to see specifically for Christians, and you do this kind of towards the end of the chapter, but I wanted to kind of surface it now is specifically, what are some of the things that you hope Christians take away? As I've already said, many of our listeners are not policy experts. They're not working on K Street. They're not working in the halls of Congress. Uh, what are some of the things that you want them to take away from a chapter like this in terms of technology policy that kind of intersects with their daily life? First thing I would say is that we do not have the monopoly on the right answers on what the policy framework should be. Like, I think that there are good Christians on both sides of these policy debates um, that are thinking through the consumer protection side of things or the consumer protection welfare standard in the antitrust conversation or what the right balance is to promote innovation or to um, enable economic opportunity and thinking about the downsides, you know. And so I, I think that's the first thing that we need to remember. I think it's actually really worth remembering uh, from the get-go that, like, Every tech policy issue is almost an inherently bipartisan issue. Like it, there are very few issues in tech that are like the Republicans are one side, Democrats are on the other. They're actually very much mixed. It's always transpartisan, whether it's on copyright, artificial intelligence, other than net neutrality. But like most other issues turn into very transpartisan conversations. And I think that's actually helpful. That is like, I think, great for me to be able to say there are people on the other side of the aisle who share my philosophy about this question. And there's also people who I am affinity with who disagree with me on this side of things. But you know what I mean? I think that's actually helpful. I think that should encourage us as Christians to know that there's not one side that has the monopoly answer and that we should always be on that team side. Um, so I think that's like the first starting point. The other side is that like, look, these conversations are happening now and they're having dramatic ramifications on your daily life in the daily lives of missionaries overseas. And the, in the, in the, in the, in what happens in the U.S. or even in the U. could affect persecuted Christians in nations that you've never thought of. You know, just a personal example. I have a cousin who has been a missionary in uh, Africa and some uh, Muslim uh, nations in Africa. And she only has to, she has to communicate via encrypted apps only. 
because like she is not, you know, she's worried about uh, other interests, you know, being able to read her emails or have access to that. And that could put her and the people she's ministering to into danger. Uh, that's happened in China, especially we know about about churches and who have been persecuted where that's happened. And there's been a lot of questions about, you know, uh, whether um, various tech companies or other players are protecting those users as they would in the U.S., where we don't have to worry about government surveillance to that degree. Um, and so that's just a one tangible example where, like, you know, if you are trying to reach people internationally, crypto actually could be a really great way of avoiding the intermediaries that could uh, hinder your ability to support uh, an, an interest or a mission group or, or, or some ministry option. And so I think Christians thinking about how to leverage those technologies is really important. Um, I am uh, a contributor and uh, supporter and longtime friend of uh, Chris Six, a pastor in the Falls Church Fairfax area who started a church called One Voice Fellowship. And this church uh, services 25 different languages. They are almost exclusively for immigrants and refugees in the Falls Church area. And he has to use AI to translate his sermon and his worship into 25 different languages every week. He couldn't do that by hand. So how do you use ChatGPT? How do you use Google Translate? How do you use this technology? And you know, when, when you have policy conversations about what a framework for AI is, well, that actually has a downstream effect on that pastor's ability to translate, to minister to people who otherwise would not be ministered to. Another example, I'm just using examples here, but another example of that is um, when we think about deplatforming. I'm going to be honest, like deplatforming scares me as a Christian because uh, yesterday's free speech could be tomorrow's hate speech. Um, and something that I'm always cognizant of is that like you and I are podcasting here. Churches use podcasts to share a message. You know, I listen to Tim Keller's message on his podcast daily. Would that exist in a couple of years? Like, these are the questions we need to think about, about, you know, making sure that we are able to use these services. And that's why I think it's relevant to us as, as Christians um, right now, because these rules could change. These practices by, by private entities could change, and that could have a major ramification effect on the way we do things. And so those are just percurrent examples that I'm thinking of. But like, you know, uh, I was doing a, a project in for, for there's a school in Florida that's a charter school that's using uh, Quest, the, you know, the, 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 the ARVR metaverse. And uh, they're using it to teach kids like history and like arts and stuff. And I'm like, I can imagine a Christian school using that to like understand the life of Paul or understand the documents of like, you know, the early church leaders. Like how cool would that be to like, take kids, transform them to what Israel was like, you know, a couple thousand years ago. We should be thinking about how to leverage this technology while also thinking about the unintended consequences and concerns and other issues that you've written about and other people written about, but this is happening. So how do we engage appropriately? Yeah, I think that's a wise word because I think often, and we've talked a lot about this throughout all of my work and specifically on this podcast and in this series, is that we often, when we approach issues of technology, as Christians, but even just kind of as non-Christians as well, we tend to take either kind of a pure optimistic approach to look at all the good and the benefits, and we should look at the good and the benefits. And there are many ways that God has He's blessed us uh, with these technologies to be able to utilize them and harness them for good. At the same time, there is a flip side to that coin. There are a lot of unintended consequences. There are sometimes even intended consequences of the values and designs of these systems and the deeply held beliefs even that drive much of the decision-making within these companies um, and even kind of broadly in society. But as you wisely point out, the policy matters. 
it immensely matters because it has a downstream effect, but it's not the only thing that matters. And I think that's one of the things it's kind of, it's not either or, it's kind of both and. We have to not only see the good and the bad and be kind of realist in some sense about technology, but even in policy, as policy is very important, but it's not the only important thing. And that's sometimes where that that bridge, that gap is sometimes hard to to overcome. One of the things that you talk about in the book that I really like is kind of continuing this gap theme as you talk about the knowledge gap problem. Um, and this is specifically between often legislators and kind of the pace at technology. Obviously, technology is uh, rapidly advancing and changing how quickly things change in this industry. At the same time, many of our legislators, uh, those whom we've elected to represent us to often bring regulation or certain types of reform, may not always be up to speed, to say it in a nice way. Uh, sometimes we have a, a congressman or something like that uh, ask you know, the Google CEO about his iPhone. Um, little like kind of funny things that happen along the way, but it's difficult. The life of the legislator is not an easy job by any means because you're asked and told that you have to basically be an expert on a hundred different areas all at the same time. But as you said, your former boss was like very much involved in the technology industry, uh, kind of in these conversations specifically around automation and things like that. How do you think we go about kind of bridging that knowledge gap problem, um, specifically in the the policy front? Because obviously you're working in technology policy, uh, but there are many legislators may have an aide or may have a, a legislative director, maybe who focus on those. But those legislators themselves are not experts on this. How do we go about that as we have very important policies or regulations or kind of decisions being put forth right now at Congress even? Um, how do we go about kind of combating that knowledge gap problem? So, I mean, inherent in that knowledge gap problem is is the revolving door that exists. I mean, I think that's just the first thing to note. And again, for, for anyone who's interested, like I worked on the Hill for a couple of years, but like there's a, like if you want to raise a family and you want to have three kids like we do, and you want to provide for your family in Washington, D.C., where, as you know, cost of living is pretty high, a Hill staff salary just doesn't work. And so you have to kind of like do it for a few years. You become knowledgeable about the system and the process and the policy area. But then like you are you have these incentives that kind of force you out of that space so that you're now using skills that you've learned and, and, and knowledge you have in other ways, usually on K Street, usually in think tanks, usually in other spaces. And it's kind of hard to come back in and use those skills. And so to your point, a lot of times there's this huge turnover. And so by the time of technology, we understand the technology, people who got to know that technology all get jobs in the private sector. I mean, e even like, for example, in crypto, crypto was like brand new. Bitcoin and blockchain and all that stuff was like brand new in DC like two, three years ago. So like if you're a staffer who learned how that works, you don't stay in on Capitol Hill to educate your boss while they're actually voting on these issues. You go work at a trade association. You come work to at a lobby shop. You start your own organization on the outside and you influence the debate from there because there really is honestly, it's out of alignment when it comes to incentives and staying as a policymaker and staffer. And that is very, very hard. Um, and so I think the biggest thing that 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 we we conflict we run into is oftentimes the loudest voice gets the attention uh, of members of Congress and and policymakers. And so what happens is is grassroots groups or you know influencers on social media love to say a line that has is you know, has a, a nice quip to it, nice sound to it, and gets attention, and people all think they know what that means, and that becomes the dominant idea of the day. And members and policymakers rush to that, and they think that's it. 
we need wisdom. We need discernment in the way we think about these things and people to demonstrate the value of their perspective in thoughtful ways that can cut through the noise, that can outlast that sort of uh, viral uh, moments. And so whether it's honestly like podcasts like this, whether it's books like like we've been a part of, whether it's you know localized conversations and roundtables with policymakers at the local level where they get to see how it actually affects consumers and users and people in the church and others, that's actually where I think the conversation needs to happen. Otherwise, it's just who's the loudest voice and who has the name calling and who has the ad hominem attack. You and I see it all the time on Twitter. Like that's where, you know, it's weird. Like we don't have think tanks anymore. We used to have like Substack writers who are loud. Like that's what it's now. Like it's no longer the institution. It's the voice of the individual. And, and that's just part of the culture. And it's part of, you know, using technology in, in this way. But you have to find a way to show that that the truth, whatever, whatever the truth of the issue is, the policy fight is has to find a way to get ahead. And there's another thing that should happen, uh, which is that like there should be more resources used at Capitol Hill or within among the agencies to help educate. Uh, CRS, Congressional Research Service, is like the in-house think tank for the Capitol Hill. It's nonpartisan. Like, how can their research and analysis be more useful, uh, both to the public and to consumer uh, to to the policymakers? Up until like. Up until like last year or two years ago, every CRS report was private. The public couldn't see these CRS reports. Anyway, uh, like like that's just an example of of like that should be made public. Like making that transparent to the public so that voters can understand the analysis that their voter that their their policymakers are seeing. That's the type of thing that I think is is we more of to help be, make sure people are all on the same page. Yeah, you're exactly right when you point out it's often the loudest voice or the squeaky wheel, as my grandmother always said, the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. Um, but it's often now the loudest voice that gets the attention. Um, and that's often what pushes the barometer or changes the the temperature of the debate a little bit. And it's really funny to me, and you mentioned this, we don't get we don't really have time to dig deep into these, but it's interesting. Ever in this policy realm, it's really funny because every six months or so, maybe year, you have like a brand new kind of issue that's going to change everything, whether it was net neutrality and how we were all going to die kind of from that or something. It was some terrible thing with net neutrality. And that whole debate kind of has almost entirely subsided um, and moved on. We've moved on to other things. One of the kind of prevailing debates that I found is really interesting is every so often the Section 230, you kind of referenced that earlier, will kind of rise above the fray and it's repealer reform and what are we going to do about 230? This is the main thing that matters. And then it kind of subsides a little bit. I know when we were writing this chapter, that was kind of, we were at one of the peaks of the 230 debate. That was one of the things you obviously referenced it a good bit. Uh, David French in his chapter does as well and a couple other authors as well, uh, talking about the nature of 230. And that, in some sense, has not subsided because it's still a conversation that needs to be had, but it's not the primary conversation. We're often, especially now, talking a lot more about privacy law and privacy regulation, whether it's at state capitals or uh, there in the halls of Congress. Uh, but I wanted to, I do think the 230 debate's interesting, and I do think it matters. Uh, maybe it doesn't matter as much as some said, but it matters more than others think it does. So tell us a little history there. Like, what is... Section 230, you threw out like the CDA. Uh, this was something that was passed in the 90s or late 90s. Tell us a little bit about it and kind of where that maybe currently sits in conversations there in D.C. Well, I, I like to call it the, uh, in, in the chapter, I refer to it as the, that notorious little law. 
um, which is like essential to like content moderation. And, and I mean, the easiest way to describe it is basically in 1996, it was a part of a bipartisan deal to think about the liability of uh, internet uh, platforms. At the time, were not social media platforms. They were, you know, other like, you know, pre-modern uh, uh, internet platforms like, you know, chat rooms and, and things like that. And basically, it basically, I mean, in simple, it basically gives immunity to um, the platform itself from liability. So it's not liable for the things that are said on uh, the platform. And again, like, you know, if I come into your house and I scream terrible things, like, you might not want me your house, but you're not liable for what I say. That's basically how it's the easiest way of describing it. And then I'm sure, I'm sure David French and other people have more intricate ways of explaining it than I am. Their lawyers know this better than me, but you know, the easiest way to describe it is that. But then the other side is also is like they also have the ability to basically, you know, in good faith moderate the conversation, have the ability to take off things that are problem, you know, basically that they, they go against their terms of service and it gives those platforms the freedom to do so. Um, it's a difference, honestly, between a public square, a real public square, versus someone's bar or restaurant or your house where like, hey, Nathan, you can come into my house. I love having you at this Euchre game. I'm just going to go old Michigan with Euchre game. I don't know what you guys play. And this is a Baptist podcast, so I'm not going to say, you know, some other games and uh, card games. But you're here for this Euchre game. And uh, I appreciate you here, but could you tone it down a little bit? Like, you know, my kids are trying to sleep or, you know, watch your language. And like, you know, it is different to do that in your house or someone else's place versus, you know, in a public square, an actual public square. So with 230, you know, conversation around reform, it's basically like, is our social media platforms the public square? And what does that mean? And what are the requirements of that? Are they utility? Are they not? And this is honestly part of the conversation. If you think about the internet stack, net neutrality with telecoms, are they our utility? How do you think about them? How do we think about Cloudflare and other you know, cybersecurity entities that basically protect your internet traffic versus the are they a public, are they a public utility or not? And then also the platforms in the same way. And so it's all kind of part of that same central conversation about like what is utility and what is not and what is the role of government or not. And so there's just been this ongoing conversation about uh, free speech on platforms and certain censorship actions that have happened where certain content's been taken off that um, some people, many conservatives and also some liberals felt were, were probably shouldn't have been taken off. Now, I will say when I wrote this chapter, there was murmurs about government jawboning, but it never was kind of proven. We didn't know it to be true. And jawboning, for anyone who doesn't know, is is a reference to the jawbone of Samson whenever he uses that jawbone to like defeat all the Philistines. And uh, that has been co-opted, if you will, or appropriated uh, in these current conversations as the government basically jawboning private entities to you know, uh, bring about certain narrative, uh, to, to push them into a certain way, to, to make them behave in a certain way. And so this happens in corporate areas where you want companies to do certain things to the government, change the rules to do so. But in the uh, social media space, it's referencing, um, let's say, conversations around COVID or conversations around the election or narratives that the government or government entities prefer or not prefer. And so there's this question about whether recently some of the actions about content moderation were done at, at the behest of government jawboning. And honestly, the Twitter files, the Facebook files, and these other kind of reporting that's come out from Barry Weiss and others over the past several months have totally, I think, changed my thoughts and conversation around 230. I'll say this. When I wrote the chapter in the book, I, I, I feel fine with 230. It makes sense. I mean, it's, it's what we have. I don't know of a better policy solution beforehand. I haven't seen any um, reform that I'm like, oh, yeah, that is a better approach 
I'm open to a better approach, but like, I don't know of a better approach. It's it's like an agnostic who like, you know, maybe there's a God, but like, I don't know of a better, who aren't convinced so they don't believe in, you know, I mean, it's it's like I'm agnostic on 230. Like, sure, it works, but if there's a better way, show it to me. And I think that that's kind of where I feel with the 230 conversation with the government jawboning. Like, I think there's a real conversation to be had about the transparency, about what were these government actors saying or doing, you know, not just from Twitter side, but also from uh, the agency side, whether it's the FBI, you know, uh, or the White House or, or other agencies. That's the part of the CDC. Those are the conversations I want to see. What were their internal deliberations? Did, were they concerned that this could be com- turning a social media platform into a compelled speech actor, a state actor, compelling speech? And that's the part that I wanted to kind of know more about. Because, and I say this, like, there is a role for government with um, especially like unlawful content online, like really bad stuff. Like when people are doing bad things on the internet, you know, we all have to describe, describe, you know what I'm talking about. There is a role for the FBI and other agencies to work with platforms to get that stuff off the internet or to go after bad actors who have that stuff on the internet, whether it's like overtly illegal stuff. The question is about legal content. You know, if you say something that's like against the predominant narrative, do you have a right to say that? And is freedom of speech about freedom of reach, like how many people you can reach, or is it about your ability to speak at all? And this is actually where, like, honestly, the going back to first principles is a First Amendment free speech conversation. And I think some of my, you know, some of the co- uh, collaborators on this book have different perspectives on like what the rules of the road should be on that. That's a very interesting conversation. I'll say this for myself: I'd love to hear what other people say from the book, like. I don't think you can even talk about 230 until we know more about the transparency and accountability side about what these government actors knew or didn't know or what the companies did or didn't do. Because honestly, I think like 90% of people's concerns about censorship, quote unquote, kind of go back to that central conversation between those government actors and these platforms. And let's let's figure that out before we even think about, you know, the long-term ramifications on your and my speech. I think that's one of the things that you wisely do is uh, not to rush to judgment in these conversations. That doesn't mean that those whom we may agree with or disagree with or inherently right or wrong, per se, is that a lot of times we just don't know what we don't know. Um, And one of the things that we've noticed in the kind of the increasingly digital public square, which is kind of, as we've already talked about, is kind of an interesting title for something like this. I think it's a good metaphor. It's not a perfect world picture by any means. But it is really interesting is how quickly or at least how the internet specifically with social media has trained us toward immediacy um, and how we have to react the moment something happens and we have to have kind of our hot take or whatever. Um, And some, we need to say, we need to be able to speak truth to power. We obviously need to do that. We also have to have our specifically as Christians, we speak truth, but it's seasoned with grace. And one of the things that I've really appreciated about this conversation, I do about your chapter and really all of the contributors in this is that while we don't all fully agree with one another, and I think people should know that when they encounter a work like this, that we weren't all sitting in the room together working through all of our chapters. These were written individually by faithful believers, faithful Christians. Um, We were seeking to honor the Lord in their specific area. There's even some maybe not tensions per se, but differing opinions on how to navigate some of this. And I think recognizing that complexity, that's something I always tell my students, um, is that to reject simple narratives. You can almost assuredly, especially today, just reject them. 
you can say that does that smells fishy, that smells funny. I don't think that that may be exactly right. And often, not always, but often, there's a little bit more complexity. There's a little bit more information behind the scenes. And I think that's exactly right is we need to we need to have a conversation about 230, but there's some bigger questions and bigger maybe fish to fry uh, that we need to know about and have some transparency. And that's something that's interesting in terms of the current kind of political climate surrounding technology issues. One of the things you've said this earlier is that whether you're on the political left or the political right, one of the interesting things, and I've noticed this, I, I we the URLC obviously work on a host of moral and social issues kind of across the board. And one of the things I found really interesting, the technology debate is actually one of the most unifying and almost bipartisan debates that we have. We all often agree that there's a problem or there's something that needs to be addressed. Now, we often disagree on exactly what to do about it, but it is interesting that we do kind of come together in that sense, uh, that something needs to be done here. And so that's one of the things that I kind of wanted to kind of wrap up our podcast time today with talking about your chapter is that sense of bipartisanship. You talk about this is really the only way forward um, in some sense, navigating some of these issues. Uh, But given the tensions in political life, a lot of the polarization, tribalization, it's interesting to me that across the board, left and right, and the moderate and middle and everything, there seems to be kind of a growing concern about the influence of the technology industry, the influence even, as you just said, of government on the technology industry that then obviously is influencing our our common life together. What are some of those areas of maybe potential bipartisanship that you think can come out of a lot of the technology debates that we're having today? What are some of the things maybe that you hope that we see more bipartisan nature on or bipartisanship on, or maybe some of the areas that you think we actually can get some stuff done um, by coming together on that? That is a great question. And I think the first thing, kind of going back to what you said, is that like time to discern this is I think the biggest thing that we need uh, to help us kind of figure some of these questions out. I mean, again, my perspective on 230, just coming back to that, is like, I always felt uneasy about it because I was like, I just don't think the conversation is fully baked yet because we don't know some of these details. And then now as we know more, it helps inform the discussion. Now I feel, oh, some of the concerns I had, this actually addresses that. Now I know where those concerns lie. I think that's actually like so crucial to a lot of these conversations. We are just getting started on the AI debate. Like the AI discussion is like, we are like an infant in this conversation. And like, it is so important to, I think, not jump to conclusions. Like, I understand a teacher or professor being concerned about what the impact of AI is going to be like in their classroom. But I also would challenge teachers or professors or anyone else to think about how AI could be incredibly useful for their classroom. And just starting from that base level, it's not even policy making, it's like just the basic level of you in your life. What is the positive aspect of that? What are educational opportunities that can come out of this to help your learning, help your teaching? That's actually, I think, the basics of this. Autonomous work. I mean, this is another one where it's like, I'm actually really excited to kind of see where we go with this. Is that like, what does the dignity of work mean? What what does that mean to Christians? What does that mean? What do we believe is dignified work? And what are we doing with our vacations going forward? One of those examples I keep on thinking about is like, you know, I'm kind of glad my grand. I don't have to coal mine like my grandfather. I love that he did it. I think it's awesome that he did it. But I'm kind of glad there's new technology. They don't have to do the dangerous work that he did. You know, a couple of generations ago. That's a good thing. I think we both have value of work, both in his life and my life. What does that mean going forward when we continue to see this? 
know, autonomous work, you know, continue to develop and thinking through like the ramifications of that. And what does that look like going forward? Also, how does that apply to transportation? What do we think about drivers? What do we think about truckers? What do we think about, you know, the Uber driver that you have? Uh, uh, what does that mean going forward? Like, these are really interesting questions. Also, what about safety? And again, like when you start with tech, it's like a ripple effect. It just goes on and on and on to these other issues. I think that's the part that you have to kind of start from. Another issue, I've been trying to think what is like a really solid issue that we should all come together on. I think the more I think about it, I think it's like privacy encryption. Like, honestly, that is where we have to find a way to balance the interests of going after a bad guy, right? With also protecting those who are most vulnerable, those who are doing mission work overseas, those who are uh, uh, pursuing religious freedom in a place where there is no religious freedom. You know, that is where like, I'm honestly most concerned because if the U.S. doesn't create our framework going forward, there's no way to protect on the outside. Like, we, There is something different about the way the U.S. is talking about this or even the EU versus some other parts of the world, whether it's like Russia or China. And that's honestly going to have major ramifications on our work as Christians overseas. And so like, I think having that conversation now is so helpful. And, you know, I'll say this, like one of the best books recently on that conversation. And by the way, it ties with crypto and all this other stuff. There's a book that just came out by Andy Greenberg, Tracers in the Dark. I'm highly recommending this because like the entire conversation is about like using tools to go after bad guys who are misusing crypto in the dark web. But also, how those tools are allowing economic opportunity for so many people. So what do we do with that? How do we work that balance out? And I, I just think like we as Christians should be pouring into those books because in the books like that and the stories like this, because if we're not, like it's gonna be a real problem for us long time down the road. And it's gonna put us in a spot where we're not able to fully use use these technologies or we're not gonna fully understand how they should be protected and how how they could be used to help those in need. Yeah. I think there's a lot of important stuff there. Obviously, there's so much more that we've kind of hinted at or talked about that we could focus. We could have an entire podcast or an entire series on some of these issues. Um, but Nathan, I just really appreciate your work, the way that you go about it. Um, I really appreciate your contribution to this book. Uh, for listeners' sake, uh, if you want to learn more about the book or you want to grab a copy of it for yourself, you can go to jasonthacker.com slash books, or you can pick up a copy at most major book resellers, including your local bookstores, lifeway.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many more. Uh, but Nathan, thank you so much for your time here, and I appreciate having you out here on the podcast. Great to be on, man. Thanks again. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Nathan and learn more about his contribution to the Digital Public Square in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.